Uh, let me give you a little information about some crazy things that have gone on. Three sets of blood red moons that correspond to significant events. If you don't understand uh, the significance of a blood red moon in the Bible, there's a prophecy in Joel and it's uh, reiterated in the book of Acts. Uh, and it's a pretty big end time scripture and prophecy. There's a little bit about in the book of Revelation as well, about in the end times, how the sun shall be turned to ash and the moon shall be turned to blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And uh, that seems to be like a lot of uh, scriptures in the Bible, um, fanciful and hard to understand. Now, of course, back in the day, uh, not only are they writing in sort of a poetic manner, but there's less of a scientific understanding of how things happen, astronomically speaking, in the heavens. So in order to describe certain things, they would use terminology that we would find um, possibly um, storybook uh, these days. But it adds to the concealment of God's plan. And remember, Proverbs 25 and 2 says, It is the glory of God to conceal a matter, and it is the joy of kings to seek it out or find it out. So how do we actually attain the sun turning to ash, the moon turning to blood. Well, it's a very vivid description of solar and lunar eclipses. Solar eclipse, the sun is blotted out except for the corona uh, around uh, the moon, which is passing before it, and it makes it look like one big burning ash. It's a big black dot in the sky with fire around it. It looks just like ash. And there is a certain type of, of lunar eclipse, uh, which is called an umbral eclipse, an umbral eclipse, because the light refracts off of the penumbral zone, you don't have to worry about what that is. All you have to know is that when it refracts back onto the moon, it literally turns it red. You may have seen this because we've had a few of them since 2004. They've been really picking up in frequency. Uh, so some of you might have seen them uh, from then until now. If you haven't, it's straight up. I mean, the, the moon turns red. There's no other way to describe it. It's pretty crazy. And uh, we know that that happens. So there's a corresponding. Now, why would, why would that be... Um, why would that implicate something as far as God is concerned about his times and seasons? We have to go all the way back to the book of Genesis, uh, the creation day number four. I believe it's somewhere around the 14th verse where he's talking about creating the sun, the moon and the stars. And he says he put them in the heavens for signs. And when you get into the Hebrew, he put them in there for signs and for seasons, for omens, for signals, for beacons. All of these uh, same English words translate into the Hebrew word that you find there about creating the sun, the moon and the stars. And of course, if you're like, well, I'm not sure about whether God would really use that or not. How is it that the wise men found the birthplace of Jesus Christ? They followed what? A star, right? So in the heavens, God put signs, not zodiacal signs. And we covered this on Wednesday night, so we're not going to cover it again. Uh, but he put in there what's uh, the Hebrew Meshcharoff is how it started out. It got changed in the, in, the, in the city of Babylon into the zodiac that you know now. Uh, anyway, point being, he put those in the heavens for a reason. They tell a story of his gospel. They tell the story of his son. And obviously, they're also for beacons. And the wise men understood that. And they followed that beacon to the birthplace of Jesus Christ. So would he use the sun, the moon, and the stars? Of course he would. Of course he would. Um, so getting back to the scripture that we're talking about, an end-time prophecy, uh, there is a significant set of lunar eclipses. You can sometimes uh, find it called a tetral or a tetron eclipse. Basically, it is four lunar or umbral eclipses back to back. Two in one year and two in the next year. Within a 365-day period or roundabout, you end up with four eclipses. This has only happened a few times on prophetic times and prophetic dates of the Lord. 
I do not have time to go into all the times and seasons, but let me just tell you real quickly like this. Jesus Christ said, and I quote, and I think you know, he said, no man can take my life, but I lay it down freely, right? Are you with me? Okay, so who was in control of his death then? He was. Were the Romans? Okay, were the Jews? God was in control. Jesus was in control of his own death, right? He needed to die in order for that innocent blood to be shed, in order for us to be redeemed, yes? So many times you find in the New Testament where the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious rulers of the day came to seize him and grab him for the breaking the law of blasphemy and they wanted to stone him to death or time or whatever they wanted to do. And his disciples would be all upset and he would all of a sudden just disappear in the middle of a crowd and they couldn't find him. And he would say over and over again, my time has not yet come. And they would say, well, Lord, don't go up to the feast because they're looking for you at the feast. And he would say, don't worry, my time has not yet come. In other words, he's in control of his own death and there's a certain time that it was going to happen. And he chose that time and God chose that time. So therefore follow from just following those two statements that you'd want to pay attention to the time that Jesus Christ died, right? Was there anything significant about that day? Well, of all the days that he could have chosen, he chose to die on a feast called Passover that they had been celebrating in that part of the world for thousands of years. They celebrated in a lot of different ways. They would have to light a candle, turn all the other lights off, blow out all the candles, light a solitary candle, take their children through their house with a wooden spoon and a feather, and they would have to take all, first they would take all the bread and everything out of their house, then they would open up all the cupboards, all the cabinets, and they would hide some leaven at some places so the kids could see it. Other places there would be crumbs and leaven that would naturally be there. Leaven is an ingredient in bread like yeast that makes it rise. Uh, and the Bible relates leaven to sin. A little bit of leaven uh, leavens the whole lump and talks about how you can't let, even let a little bit of sin into your life. That's why Jesus Christ is called the unleavened bread. I'm sorry if I'm moving fast. I'm just trying to make a point. Get back to the point that I really want to make. So we have the light of the candle, right? Um, everybody say God, God is light. light. Okay, so we have this single solitary light. They're taking uh, the feather of a dove or a pigeon. Everybody say Holy Spirit. They're taking a wooden spoon. Everybody say the cross. cross. And they're using the feather. Everybody say the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit to get all of the leaven. Everybody say sin out of their life. And they're putting it onto the spoon. Everybody say the cross. cross. And they're taking it outside of their house and they're dumping the sin. And Jesus Christ, while he was on the cross, the Bible says he who knew no sin became sin for us. When he came onto the scene, John said, behold, the Lamb of God, everybody say Passover, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So there's a reason why he died on Passover. They had to apply the blood to the doorpost in order to escape the death angel. They had to take the leaven out of their house with the feather of the Holy Spirit, the light of God and the wood of the cross. And it had to be dumped and it had to be done for thousands of years. There's a reason why he died on that day to signify, I am the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. It is the Holy Spirit that is in me. I will eradicate the sin. God is light. The Father is in the Son. The Son is in the Father. Everything is taking place and being fulfilled. Does that make sense to you? Okay. Then he ended up being buried. He died. By the way, he gave up the ghost. Eli, Eli, Elisabach, and I, Father, why hast thou forsaken me? If he wouldn't have done that, you know, they say he could have hung there forever. It's a little facetious, but at the same time, God can't die. So he had to give up the spirit, give up the ghost and the man, the flesh and blood body had to die. That happened exactly at the changing of a feast so that he would be buried on a separate feast called unleavened bread. Which, of course, he was the unleavened bread, unleavened bread. They'd been baking for thousands of years. It's striped. It's pierced. It's without leaven. I don't even have to explain that to you. 
rose on a different feast called First Fruits three days later. All of this is out of Leviticus chapter 23. And then 50 days later, the counting of the Omer, 50 days, everybody say Pentecost. Pentecost means 50 days later. You hear it in the beginning, Penta, five, 50, cost, later, counting, 50 days of counting. Uh, he poured out the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2 and started the church and birthed the church. So all these things that he did were on specific days at specific times. Alrighty? There are three more feasts on which he did not do anything. He didn't do anything on these feasts because all of the other feasts are in the springtime. Everybody say planting. planting. Three feasts in the springtime, one in the middle of Pentecost, and then three in the fall, everybody say harvest. I don't have to explain to you what that means either, right? First, he's planting the gospel seed, time for it to mature, time for people to accept it, and then harvest, seed time and harvest. The harvest is the end. Does that make sense? So he did everything in the beginning according to a time scale of the festivals of God. He's going to do everything in the end according to a time scale of the festivals of God. Just a, a little nugget, a little preview Whenever God returns, it says multiple times that he's returning with the sound of a trumpet and the voice of the archangel, right? He's coming back at the last. He's coming back at the last. One more time. He's coming back at the last. Y'all get better every time. Trump. Trumpet. So the next feast in which, that he hasn't done anything on yet, the next feast that is coming up after Pentecost is called Rosh Hashanah, which in English, it, was, it really is literally head of the year, but they call it the Feast of Trumpets. Just by coincidence, I'm sure. After the Feast of Trumpets comes the Day of Atonement, which is called Yom Kippur. After the Day of Atonement comes the Feast of Tabernacles, which is called Sukkot. I'm telling you that because we're about to talk about Sukkot. So it begins with Passover, and it ends with Sukkot, right? April 2nd, 1493. There was a blood-red moon on Passover, April the 2nd followed by a blood-red moon on September 25th of the same year, fell, coincidentally, on Sukkot. So two blood-red moons, one at the beginning of the feast cycle, one at the end. The next year, 1494, there was another one on Passover and another one on Sukkot. That's a pretty rare coincidental thing. I wouldn't call it coincidental exactly, but that's how it happened. So what was significant about 1493 and 1494? It was preceded by 1492, which was the Spanish Inquisition. Final year, 1492, when Alhambra decree ordered all remaining Jews would not, who would not convert to Christianity to leave Spain. So uh, there was a dispensation of the Jews in 1492. There were corresponding uh, quadruple lunar and umbral eclipses in 1493 and 1494. And reading in the newspaper that the Aztec Empire has raised back up in Central America just out of nowhere. It would make no sense. It would be totally unbelievable. You, weren't, you and I weren't here. Some of you were um, to see that. Uh, but 1948, Israel became a, state, a nation again, which is an amazing thing. It's maybe uh, marked as even more amazing because the first Jew that was ever called out, the first man that ever became a Jew was who? Abraham, right? Abraham was a Gentile. God called him out and said, I'm going to build from you a great nation. I'm going to call it the Hebrew nation. He was the first ever Jew. How many years from Adam was Abraham born? 1,948. So the first Jew was born 1,948 years after Abraham. Israel became a nation 1,948 years A.D. Uh, coincidence? I think not. Anyway, after 1948, we had in 1949 
a blood red moon again on Passover and Sukkot. And in 1950, blood red moons on Passover and Sukkot. Just like followed in 1492. 1967 was the Six Days War. Israel became a nation in 1948, but they did not own Jerusalem. The the, uh, Muslims still owned Jerusalem and the Temple Mount. So they fought a six day war against a massive army of multiple states of of, uh, Muslim uh, warriors and whatever. I don't know how many people came against them, but it was crazy. It was impossible for them to win. But they won and they won Jerusalem back in 1967. Subsequently, in 1967, there were blood red moons on Passover and Sukkot. And in 1968, there were blood red moons on Passover and Sukkot. Everybody say signs in the heavens. So we see implications with Israel's deliverance, Israel's independence, Israel's dispensation, all centered around these quadruple events in the heavens that are extremely rare. So it would be interesting to note when is the next one going to happen. The next one is going to happen in 2014 and 2015. The first day of Passover, there will be, then this is not maybe when it comes to eclipses and movements of stars and constellations, it is an exact science. Right, NASA knows what's going to happen from now until the year 3000. Um, we're gonna, Eli, could you uh, turn the lights up over there? I mean, there's a light switch on the wall. Turn it up a little bit. Um, so they know for sure that on Passover and Sukkot, there will be blood red moons in 2014 and Passover and Sukkot, there will be blood red moons in 2015. What does that point to? That points to a possible significance either in the year 2013, in the year 2014 or the year 2015. In other words, that means between now and a couple of years from now, there should be some type of significant movement with Israel. That's fun to understand that. What's, what's, what's kind of interesting about that is that biblically speaking, there's really only one thing left that has to happen to Israel. They have to rebuild their temple and then the whole world's going to try to annihilate them. Those are the next things that are going to happen in the Bible. When that happens, we'll know that we're really getting close to approaching the end time. So what am I telling you? Uh, that all the tribulation and the end of the world is going to start in the next few years? Not necessarily. But maybe, <laughs> and I, I don't know. I'm just giving you information. You figure out what it means. Um, this is a preview. We're going to talk more about this. Nobody laughed. I'm kind of joking, I'm trying to keep it light a little bit. Okay, I don't want you to start taking crazy action. We're going to talk more about this on Wednesday nights, and my point here is trying to get you to come on Wednesday night. So uh, I want to go to a couple of slides uh, Ted's going to share with us. First one is um, about a word in Arabic called Suleiman. Suleiman is the main transliteration of the Arabic name Suleiman. And the name means man of peace. Keep it there for a second, Ted. For those of you that know your eschatology, those of you that have an idea about your end times prophecy in the Bible, who is the man of peace in the Bible? Say a little louder. Who is the man of peace in the Bible? Okay, we got two answers. Shouldn't have done that. Uh, Jesus definitely is a peaceful man, but the man of peace in the Bible is Antichrist. That's what he's called. He's called the man of peace. Three and a half years of the tribulation, he brings a false peace, mainly to the area of the Middle East. Under the falsehood of peace, he changes time, seasons, and religious expectations, eventually gaining control of the Temple Mount and trying to gain control of the religious structure of the Jewish people, which subsequently ends 
in the valley of Armageddon and Jehoshaphat and all those nice things that happen in the very end there. Uh, proves to be not so much a man of peace, but that's one of his titles in the Bible. Are you with me? Man of peace. I kind of don't want to ask everybody to say Antichrist, so just know it. Man of peace is Antichrist. I feel weird about asking you to say that. Why does it matter to you that the name Suleiman means man of peace? Next slide. Bashar al-Assad. Anybody know who that is? President of Syria, right? So Syria is kind of the main player on the map at the moment. When you turn on the news and what's going on, people are bombing each other. Things are happening. Nobody knows who's the good guys, who's the bad guys. Rebels are being armed. Uh, All different things are going on. Nobody knows whether to back this guy or kick this guy out. He's causing ultimate turmoil over there in the Middle East. Interestingly enough, the Assads are originally from Qadara, just east of Latakita, I don't know, in northwest Syria. They are members of the minority Alawite sect and belong to Chaldea tribe. The family name Assad goes back to 1927 when Ali Suleiman changed his last name to Assad. So Assad's real last name is Suleiman. Suleiman means man of peace. Assad means the lion. When the Antichrist, and I don't want you to make too much of this, we're going to go over it on Wednesday nights. The Antichrist returns and he projects himself to be who? To be the Christ, right? When Christ returns, he projects himself as what? Not the lamb, but the lion of the tribe of Judah. So it's interesting that Assad's name, he has two names, double meaning. One means man of peace, one means the lion. Because the Antichrist is going to project himself as the lion of the tribe of Judah as if he is the returning Christ. Which is an interesting note. Next slide. The Assad family originates from Suleiman al-Wahish, original, original name. Hafez Assad's grandfather, who lived in the northern Syria mountains in the village of Kadora, the locals reportedly nicknamed him Wahish, which means the beast. Interesting. So Bashir al-Assad carries three namesakes, man of peace, Lion and the Beast. <laughs> Sounds like uh, Wizard of Oz. Um, let me read something else to you real quick. That's not where your mind was going. You weren't thinking Wizard of Oz. We're going to go to another set of slides. I believe we are. Far too many prophecy teachers today have missed this simple fact, fact that I want you guys to realize. Throughout the book of Isaiah, the Antichrist is referred to as the Assyrian. You can read the book of Isaiah and see that for yourself. Because of the Eurocentric perspective of many modern prophecy teachers, the belief that the Antichrist was known as the Assyrian throughout the early church has all been but forgotten. Consider just a small handful of great Christian leaders who openly taught concerning the great last days harbinger. Hippolytus of Rome was one of the most important theologians of the early third century. Speaking of the Antichrist, Hippolytus said that these things then are said of no one else but that tyrant, the shameless one, adversary of God, who shall show in what follows. But Isaiah also speaks thus, it shall come to pass, that when the Lord has performed his whole work upon Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish that stout mind, the king of Assyria, and the greatness and the height and the glory of his eyes. Elsewhere, when referring to the many prophecies about the Assyrian found in Micah and Isaiah, Hippolytus stated quite directly that the Assyrian is another name for the Antichrist. It is the most prevalent name in the Old Testament for the Antichrist. You may have heard that. You may have never heard that. I know pastors who've been pastoring for 25 years that when I told them that, they had no idea. I had no idea that people had no idea. But in the book of Isaiah, and probably the most prevalent title, the Antichrist, in the Old Testament is the Assyrian. There's no such place as Assyria anymore because they changed their name to Syria. So in Syria right now, the Syrian is a name for the Antichrist. This is, this is uh, 
Sermon number one, we're almost done. Nope, go backwards. So we have a guy in Syria who has three namesakes, man of peace, the lion, and the beast. We have these blood red moons that are coming up in 2014 and 2015. These rare events that have always signaled a significant time and change for the nation of Israel. That's just a preview, little tip of the iceberg, little nugget. There's a whole, whole lot more to talk about. If you want to understand these things a little bit better, we'll see you on Wednesday night. We'll see you on about four Wednesday nights in a row. If this is all that you hear, if you don't come on Wednesday night, you're not allowed to share that with anybody because you're going to freak them out. And they're going to think that Al-Assad is the Antichrist, and that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying something a little bit different than that. If you want to know what I'm saying, you got to come on Wednesday nights. On Wednesday nights, we also do not not record. If you want to bring your own recording device, you're welcome to. I don't care about anybody hearing these messages or not hearing them. We just simply don't have our equipment, and we don't record on Wednesday nights. Uh, But you're welcome to do that. Uh, However, um, for trying my best to follow the Holy Spirit, I don't feel good about taking three or four Sundays to teach this, so we're going to do it on Wednesdays. Amen? Amen. All righty. Play with me, if you would, to um, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11. And I just want to run through with you real quick what's on my heart this week. It's not going to be long. It's the mystery of the cursed fig tree. The sermon is going to be titled, In the Time of Figs. Mark chapter 11, verse 1, says, When they came nigh to Jerusalem, unto Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he sent forth two of his disciples, and he said to them, Go your way into the village over against you. And as soon as you be entered into it, you shall find a colt tied where I'll never sat a man. Loose him and bring him. And if any man says to you, why do you do this? Say, the Lord has need of him. Verse 4, they went their way, they found the colt. Verse 5, we'll go to verse 6. They said unto them, even as Jesus has commanded, let them go. They brought the colt to Jesus. They cast their garments on him. They sat, he sat upon him. And many spread their garments in the way, and others cut down branches of the trees and strawed them in the way. And they that went before and they that followed cried, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed be the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus entered into Jerusalem and into the temple. And when he had looked round about upon all things, and now the evening tide was come, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the morrow, when they were come from Bethany, he was hungry. I want to stop there for a second. Jesus has commanded his disciples to go and get this colt. The colt on which he's going to ride and make his triumphant entry into Jerusalem. This lowly little donkey. There were people that knew who he was, and there were people that knew he was coming. They cut down palm branches, they cut down tree leaves, they took off their own garments, they laid them on the ground. This is an act in Israel of something called extending the awe. That on a Sabbath or a holy day, you can, or you're only allowed to travel so far because you're not supposed to do any servile work on those days. 
So if they had to travel a little bit further than was allowed by the law, there was something called extending the av, where if they laid down branches, or in this case, branches and clothes, from the end of their uh, how long they were supposed to go for another so many uh, yards and, and miles, they could go a little bit further. Religion will make you do crazy things. They knew he was coming, and they started worshiping him saying, Blessed be the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. I want to point out who these people were not. These people were not the Pharisees. These people were not the Sadducees. These were the common people. These were those that didn't study the law. These were those that were not elected by a rabbi to be a a disciple these are those that were not of the religious structure. You have the, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and those that sit at law and those that sit at, at the great tables and the banquet halls and the members of the Sanhedrin. And they're all in their little houses and they're in their little meeting rooms and they're talking about how to decipher the scripture and could anything good really come out of Nazareth and was he supposed to be born in Bethlehem and the things that this man was saying, could they possibly be true? And Nicodemus is going, well, he's doing a lot of miracles he seems like he's, to, he's from God in my eyes. And they're going, Nicodemus, what is wrong with you? I've been caught up in this storm. This guy's from the wrong side of the tracks. There's no way he's the right guy. And they're trying to figure out ways to capture him, ways to get him to, to mess up, ways to get him to, to blaspheme. And one guy stands up and says, why don't you just let him do his thing? Because other people have done this and eventually it falls apart. And some guys are saying, well, if we cut off the head, you know, the sheep will scatter. We got to figure out a way to do this. We don't know who this man is. In the meantime, while they're having this meeting, They can barely hear themselves because outside of their hallway, there's a throng of people crying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. And they're walking outside trying to figure out what in God's name is going on. And there's this man in a dirty white robe riding on a little donkey that's not even his. People throwing their clothes on the ground going, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees really just want them to shut up because they're trying to have a meeting and break down the scripture. And teach people how to believe the way that they believe. Everybody say religion. Religion. Verse 11 says they entered into Jerusalem into the temple. Everybody say the church. And when he had looked round about upon all things and now the evening tide was come, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. And on the morrow when they were come from Bethany, he was hungry. That should never happen. That should never happen when you leave church. Now, listen to me. When we leave here, we're all going to go eat because we're physically hungry. Now, stop thinking about that until we're done. (laughs) But with the implication in this scripture is that he went into the temple. He went into the church. He looked around. He saw everything they had to offer. He heard everything they had to say, and he left hungry. Well, maybe if he would have driven up in his Mercedes Benz, God bless him, I would drive one if I had it. But you understand, maybe if he would have showed up in style, maybe if he was part of the in crowd, he would have got in there and he would have had something to say. He might have got invited to the conference next week. He might be speaking at Pastor So-and-So's church. He might be a conglomeration of none of this. There's nothing wrong with any of that stuff. I just want you to hear what I'm saying. Hear my heart. But instead he walked around and he was like, you know, I just really, I'm just really about worshiping God. 
I'm just really, and we're going to see that here in a second, what he's going to do in the temple. He's thinking, you know, really, I just thought this was a, this was going to be a house for all people. I thought anybody could walk in from the best to the worst. You know, he said, don't let the well-dressed people sit at the front just because they're well-dressed. Don't save seats for those that seem to be pompous and, and higher up in society and cast the homeless guy out of the back. It's supposed to be a place for all people. Now, he didn't say the rich people couldn't come. He's just saying, why don't the why don't we promote the lowliest in the body of Christ and let those that are on the highest peak take a step back and maybe we'll all find a way to be equal. And instead of promoting religion, we can promote grace and humility and love. But instead, I'll walk into church and I'll leave hungry because I came on a cult. And they expected me to to fly down from heaven on a white stallion. I'm Jesus Christ either way, saints. Ride in on a donkey, you have to leave hungry. Verse 13. Seeing a fig tree afar off, having leaves, he came that happily he might find anything thereon. I want to read something to you. What does a fig represent? There's a lot of speculation in the Bible about what tree it was that Adam and Eve ate the fruit from. The fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is definitely erroneously depicted more often than not as an apple. Certainly not an apple. So what was it? There are really only two theories. One is a fruit called an etrog and the theories behind that. There's not a whole lot to it, but it's possible. The other one is that, you know, after they ate the fruit, it doesn't say what they ate, but they sure grabbed them some fig leaves pretty quick and sewed them up and got dressed in them. So it seems like maybe. Fig trees have profoundly influenced culture throughout several religious traditions. Among the most famous, the sacred fig tree and the banyan fig, the oldest living plant of known planting date is a ficus relic. Uh, religiosa tree known as the Sri Mahibadi planted in a temple at a place I can't pronounce in Sri Lanka by King Tisan in 288 BCE. The common fig is one of two sacred trees of Islam. There's a sacred tree in Sri Lanka, fig tree. There are two sacred trees in Islam. One's a fig tree. There are surahs in the Quran and one particular named the fig. Fig trees are important in Buddhism, Hinduism, and Jainism. The Buddha is traditionally held to have found enlightenment while meditating under a sacred fig. The same species was the world tree of Hinduism. The Plaxa Pra Sravana was said to be a fig tree between the roots of which the Sarvati River sprang forth. It is usually held to be a sacred fig, but more probably seems to be a common fig. The common fig tree is also cited in the Bible where in Genesis 3-7, Adam and Eve cover their nakedness with fig leaves. I was studying about figs, and I was trying to figure out this scripture. And I came to an interesting conclusion. I want to skip down to a verse in Matthew chapter 11. Let's see where we're at here. Actually, I didn't write it down. It's not in here. But there's a. Uh, let me look it up for you. Talk amongst yourselves. 
Matthew 7.16 says, You shall know them by their fruits. Everybody say them. Everybody say us. By their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? I want you to remember that. Grapes of thorns or figs of thistles. Studying figs, that's one thing that I came across, was that figs are never connected with thorns or connected with thistles, and grapes are connected with thorns. And I thought, what's the significance there? And I started looking at it, and I figured out that uh, thorns uh, are something that plants uh, produce or naturally have in order to protect themselves. They're a protective mechanism against your big old gnarly hands trying to grab them, uh, against other predators trying to eat them, against insects, against whatever. They're protection. Everybody say protective. Thorns are protective. So what's the difference between thorns and thistles? Or th- thistles are more like their own plants, and thistles are specifically uh, built to harm other plants. Thistles, they take up an area, they grow outward, and they go, they almost attack, and they harm other plants. Thorns don't do that. Thorns sit still and wait. They're a protective mechanism. Thistles are an aggressive mechanism. They go out and they attack. So Jesus says, do men gather grapes? Talking about you shall know them. Everybody say them. Everybody say us. Shall men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? So there are two types of people he's talking about. The fruit is different. One is surrounded by thorns, a protective barrier, a protective layer. The other is an aggressive one that hurts other people, and he's relating it to the fig. On the morrow when they came from Bethany, Matthew eleven twelve, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree afar off having leaves, he came. If happily he might find anything thereon. Another thing about figs that's different than grapes. Grapes have a naturally occurring organism on the outside. Yeast. Very simple. The first domesticated microorganism. The appearance of this yeast on the outside of grapes uh, gave way to the fermentation of the fruit, which in order, you know, subsequently gave us wine. They have it on the outside and they pollinate like a regular plant from the outside. Figs, however, they keep all of their seeds, all of their pollen, everything they need to reproduce and pollinate on the inside. And there's only one specific wasp that is able to get inside that fig and it lays its own eggs there and then it takes some of the seeds from the fig and it goes and pollinates so that fig trees can reproduce. So there are some people that have fruit that bear results on the outside and is shared with everybody. Everybody say grapes. There are other fruits which keep everything inside of themselves. Everybody say figs. So there are two types of people in the church. There are Christians and there are religious folk. Some of us have naturally occurring microorganisms of yeast and fermentation on the outside. We're fermenting. We can't help it. We're like a fine wine. We're getting stronger. The wine is the Holy Ghost, the Bible says. They're not drunk on wine. They're drunk on the Holy Spirit. It's a representation. No man takes new wine and puts it in old wine skin. Do not touch the oil. Do not touch the wine. Sacred. Grapes. On the outside, naturally occurring. There are others who keep everything inside and don't share with anybody. Now, it's what God, it's what God gave me, and I'm keeping it right here close to the vest. On the outside of figs, there's a, nat- there's a natural protective layer 
where nobody can or certain organisms can't make their way inside. They're so closed in. They're so protective of their own cells that they're, they don't produce thorns. They produce thistles, which go out and harm other plants. So all of you grapes, all of you Christians, all of you naturally fermenting, wine-bearing vessels of the Holy Spirit, you're protected by thorns. What was his crown made out of, I wonder? And when it pierced his skin, what came down? The blood like wine, right? All of us figs, by us, I don't mean myself, other people. Uh, there's no protection there. The only way to protect yourself when you're religious is to reach out those religious tentacles and harm other people. Well, brother, how do you know that you're a Christian? Well, listen, my Christianity is based on the fact that I'm better than you. My Christianity is based on the fact I know that I'm a Christian because I can look at your life and I can tear it down. That's right. I don't live with my girlfriend. And I'm not saying you should. I'm not saying that's okay. Don't get me wrong. What, let me, let me, people are going to get thrown off. I could go through a lot of examples. You'd be like, so that's okay? No, no, no. It's not that it's okay. It's that a long time ago, God taught me a lesson. I can look at somebody's life and I can see all the sin in their life. I can talk about the alcohol. I can talk about the drugs. I can talk about the sex. I can talk about the illicit behavior. I can talk about the movies they watch. I can talk about the things they say. I can talk about the persona they project. I can talk about the way they treat other people. I can do all that. I can tell them how all of it's wrong. And if I can get them to believe me, if they respect me enough and they'll do everything that I say, then eventually I've made a proselyte of my own self. And Jesus said, when you do that, they become twofold the child of hell. Because now not do they not only not know me, but they have another system built up beside me, which is the system of becoming you. And you, my friend, are not God. And you are not able to get anybody to that level. Now I've got to get you out of them before I can get them into me. So they're twofold the child of hell. So instead of telling them all the things they shouldn't do, why don't you tell them some things that they should do and those things they shouldn't do will naturally fall away. I've got this crazy notion, and I wonder if you're on the same page, that maybe we could just worship God. Maybe we can just worship God. No matter what. Well, pastor, you're going through some things. I know. I don't know what else to do but worship God. What am I supposed to do? I'm just going to worship God. Will you worship him with me? That's my question. The enemy wants to bury me under six feet of dirt. He wants to bury you. I was thinking about that this week and I thought, you know what? That's all right because I'm about six foot tall. That gives me like three, that gives me like a foot and a half. I can reach right through the top of that. If I can just lift my hand up and worship God, I might not be able to breathe. I might die underneath that six feet of dirt, but I'll die worshiping God. That's all I want to do. Wherever I'm at. Well, you're not. What about your building? What about my building? What about our building? I'd love to be in there, but I'm in here right now and I want to worship God. That's what I want to do. Well, where's your wife at? I don't know. I'm just going to worship God and I hope she's doing the same thing. I can't tell you all the answers. I don't have all the answers. I don't know what's going on in your life. I could try to tell you the wisdom of Thad to try to fix it, but I'd rather just tell you to worship God. Can we just worship him? He comes up to the fig tree. Everybody say religion. Because he's hungry. And what does he find in religion? He came to it and he found nothing but leaves. For the time of figs was not. Jesus answered, verse 14, and said unto it, No man eat fruit of this tree hereafter forever. And his disciples heard it. 
They came to Jerusalem. He went into the temple. What did he do right after? Right after he cursed the religious tree. He goes into the temple. He began to cast those out that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves. Why specifically does it say doves? Because within our religious system, there are people that are so pompous and arrogant and raised up and pseudo powerful that they feel like they have some type of authority over the coming and going of the Holy Spirit itself. And they want to sell you and they want to merchandise to you the power of God, the cross of Jesus Christ, the depth of the gospel, the movement of the Holy Spirit. You stand when they say to stand, you raise your hands. When they say to raise your hands, you do what they say to do. They'll satellite themselves in and they'll tell you there's no other way. This is the way. This is it. We have complete control over what the spirit says and what the spirit does. And Jesus will walk right into a church like that to those that buy and sell money changers, selling doves, and he would not suffer that any man should carry any vessel through the temple. You are the vessel, my friend. And he taught, saying unto them, Is it not written that my house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer? But you've made it a den of thieves. My house of all nations is a house of prayer. I don't know what nation you represent. You might be part of the nation of the depressed. This house is for you. You might be the nation of the addicted. This house is for you. You might be from the nation of the abandoned. This house is for you. You might be the nation of the unworthy. This house is for you. You may be from the nation of unsure. This house is for you. You may be from the nation of caught smack dab right in the middle of sin, the lifestyle, the whole nine yards. 99% of churches might kick you out of the back door. That's okay because you can't find a real dove inside of a den of thieves. So walk on in the back door of Edgewater. This house is for you. This is a house of prayer. This is a house where we worship. The scribes and chief priests heard it and saw how they might destroy him for they feared him because all the people were astonished at his doctrine. And when the evening was come, he went out of the city. In the morning they passed by and they saw the fig tree. Everybody say religion. religion. Dried up from the roots. And Peter, calling to remembrance, said unto him, Master, behold, the fig tree which you curse is withered away. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Have faith in God. That's really all I wanted to tell you this morning. Have faith in God. I know life is hard. You can stand to your feet. We're coming up to the end of September. In Israel, that means we're at the end of a feast cycle. Everything we just talked about from Passover to Sukkot, we are in Sukkot right now. On the Hebrew calendar, we're in Sukkot right now. We're almost at the end of it. The enemy steps up his game because the feast times are important. If you want to know more about why, come on Wednesday night. Just a friendly reminder. He steps up his game. So I know you're having trouble because I'm having trouble. I know you're having trouble because the time is near. I know you're having trouble because it's the time of trouble. Daniel's last week is called Jacob's time of trouble. It's the time that we're in. What I wanted to tell you this morning was the fig trees dried up. The roots have withered away. This house is a house of prayer for all nations. You are welcome And you are welcome to worship God. But I'm going to tell you this from the bottom of my heart. and It's going to reign true all the days of the existence of Edgewater Church. 
We're not just inviting you to worship God. We're telling you when you walk in here, we're going to be worshiping God. So if you're not sure about that, I apologize, but not really. We're going to be worshiping God. 